0: Good morning. How's it going? We good? Good. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, I don't know about you, but this week has been a good week, a full week, uh, a lot of things going on in the world, a lot of things going on in our own community, a lot of things going on in our own lives. Uh, But hopefully, I pray uh, just a reminder, even now, uh, of the Lord's goodness and the Lord's faithfulness in your life and mine, that His kindness towards us is unceasing. And um, and we have much to be thankful for. Um, I mean, we were praying together, uh, some folks on staff, on Wednesday. And just thanking the Lord for uh, the things that we don't think about very often, that we get to do this. I mean, even as unideal as being socially distanced and wearing masks, we, we get to do this. We get to gather together as God's people and enjoy fellowship with one another, to hear teaching from God's word, to worship the Lord in spirit and truth and our holy humming together. That <laughs> um, I hope will be something more sooner rather than later. And one of the things I'm thankful for, and this is, <laughs> is going to sound a little self-serving, uh, but I really am, I'm thankful that we're at a church that has godly leadership, um, I've been a part of churches where pastors have been um, unavailable to the congregation. I'm sure many like adults in the room have probably had similar stories, um, or maybe leaders that they did not think were worth following, that were not godly models of, of leadership and service. And um, as we talked this morning about biblical church leadership, um, I want to start off by saying, just remove me from the equation. Uh, I want to start off by saying we are a blessed people. Um, We have much to be thankful for. So uh, we're going to talk about biblical church leadership this morning. And so uh, the main two offices that we have in the church are the office of pastor and the office of deacon. And I'll say this again a little bit later, but let me start off just by saying the church has not been totally unified on this topic. And so you remember just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about church polity, how the church is structured and how God has blessed Baptist churches. He has blessed Presbyterian churches. He has blessed Episcopalian churches. The way that we are structured is not precluding us from God's blessing or God's favor or God's um, presence. And it's the same with church leadership. There are some things, some things that I think are clearly biblical. There are some things that I think are open to interpretation. And so as we talk about what, is, what does it mean to be a godly faithful, biblical pastor or godly, faithful, biblical deacon. We recognize that there are some people who don't see eye to eye on this, and that's okay. There's latitude here for how we view uh, church leadership in certain ways. So we're going to start off by reading probably the clearest text in the New Testament as it relates to church leadership. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So hopefully you found it by now. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. This is Paul writing to Timothy, an elder or a pastor and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. O God in heaven, we thank you, Father, for the clarity with which you have given us your word. We thank you for uh, giving us the clearest description and depiction of your word in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived among his people, who died on our behalf, who rose again with all authority and power. The word made flesh. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to open up our eyes and our minds so that we might see and understand the truth of your word as we think about what it means to have biblical church leadership. God, I pray that for many of us in this room, we would see it as our privilege and our responsibility to to rule as a congregation. And part of that ruling includes affirming and approving our leaders. And for some of us in the room, Lord, I pray that we would aspire to these offices, that God, you would call up young men even today and put the desire in their heart to shepherd, shepherd God's flock. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory and your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to talk about pastors and deacons as the primary offices of leadership in the church but we need to start kind of one step before. all right? So if you're taking notes this morning, the the first point we're actually going to talk about is this. Jesus and the apostles found the church. Now I'm not using the word found as in like they discovered it. I'm using the word found as in they are the foundation of the church. So uh, hold your place in 1 Timothy 3 and flip over just a couple of pages to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We read this Uh, verse just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how the church is structured or what makes the church. But Ephesians 2.20 is really helpful for us as we think about where should we begin as we think about church leadership. It's like a remix about to happen. Uh, So Ephesians 2.20, Paul is talking about the church, the household of God, starting in verse 19. And listen to what he says in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So when we talk about the church, we have to begin with Jesus and the apostles. And, and I put the apostles on the screen, but, but in that is also the prophets. Mainly what I'm, I'm talking about is this. God has spoken his word to his people and there have been some who have received that word and have been given the task to share that word with the world. So in the Old Testament, primarily we find that work among the prophets. In the New Testament, we find that work primarily among the apostles. And so the church is founded on the testimony of those who speak God's word to man. The cornerstone of that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd of the church. He is the supreme king over his kingdom bride. And and we submit our lives to Jesus. He is our ultimate authority. He is our ruler and our king. He is our bridegroom. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone. Now flip over just one page to Ephesians chapter 4 and find verse 11. Paul writes this, he says, and he, that is the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So God has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, many people would say that those last two words, shepherds and teachers, is, is kind of making up one office. Those who would lead by shepherding and teach the church. So that leaves us with apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Now an evangelist, all of us have probably come into contact with an evangelist if we've been at Lakeview any amount of time, right? We've had guys like Junior Hill come, uh, you think about Billy Graham being a, a huge historic example of an evangelist, of someone whose primary goal it is to share the gospel with as many people as possible, and they have this gift of being heard, <laughs> uh, and not in the sense of just your ears, but... But those who have the gift of evangelism seem to have this gift but that when they share the gospel, people respond. They respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so many of you even have probably heard the gospel and came under conviction of sin under the teaching of an evangelist. You may have come under conviction of sin from Junior Hill. I mean, we baptized many, many people the last time he came. But that gift, that, that office of an evangelist is not an, it's not an office of leadership. It's an office of, of mission right? That person is going out to the lost and sharing the gospel. So that leaves the apostles and the prophets. Well, we believe that apostles and prophets had a task to share God's word with his people. And according to Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, we won't read it, but suffice to say, it says this, that we are not to add anything else to the revelation of God in in the word. The canon of Scripture, the the 66 books of the Bible, is complete. So the work of the prophets, the work of the apostles is done. Jesus has come in human form. He has shown us the the glory of God. And now there's no need for apostles or prophets any longer. So we believe that those offices of leadership have ceased. There, There are no longer people on earth today that we would consider to be a biblical prophet or a biblical apostle. There's not people in the world today that have that kind of biblical authority over churches, over regions, over believers who say, God has spoken to me in an authoritative way that you ought to believe, no questions asked. So that leads us with the shepherds and teachers. And we'll see in 1 Timothy 3, like we've already read, not only do we have this position of leadership, the shepherds and teachers, but we have a position of service in the deacons. Now, I'm just going to remind you again, as we lean into these next two points of elders and deacons, we remember, we don't have to see eye to eye on this. I'm going to tell you what we believe as a church. I'm going to give you some things to think about as we think about elders and deacons. But this is a tertiary issue. It's not primary. It's not even secondary. It's tertiary. Where we land on this view should not divide the people of God. So, Second point, we're moving on from Jesus and the apostles, and now we move to elders. Elders shepherd the church. Now, who are elders? Uh, When we think about the New Testament, when we're reading our our Bibles, when we think about an elder, what do we see? Who do we see? Well, let's be clear that there are a lot of different words in the New Testament that describe the same office. Now, we at Lakeview don't regularly use the word elders, right? We use the word pastor. Pastor. Right, So Brother Al is our pastor. Uh, uh, Kevin Webb is the college pastor. Hal is the, the, the mission's pastor. Jerry uh, Ferguson is the international's pastor. Things like that. We, we don't necessarily use the word elder very often, but that doesn't mean it's not a, a, a fine word to use. And throughout the New Testament, we have multiple words that talk about the same thing. So in our text this morning at 1 Timothy 3, he doesn't use the word pastor or the word elder. He uses the word overseer. There's also uh, the word bishop or the word presbyter. And those are translated different times in different ways in different translations, but they all refer to the same office. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 3, our original text. And let's just look for a little bit about some different things that we see in this text. So starting in verse two, he says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. You've heard brother Al say this before don't fix anything that's not broken. He says, uh, being above reproach does not mean that you are sinless, but it does mean that you are blameless. And the difference there is all of us have sin. All of us wrestle with different tendencies and temptations. All of us have struggles in our life. But do I live my life? If someone who lives their life as a pastor, do they live their life in such a way that charges are not able to be brought against them? Do they live their life in a godly manner? Are they holy, practically? Are they above reproach? And that really sums up most of the characteristics that we need to find if we're looking for a pastor. So things like sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Right? These are all character qualities that can be summed up in the idea that a pastor, an elder, ought to be above reproach there are two skills that a pastor ought to have. And he doesn't have to be awesome at them, but he does have to be competent in these things. So, so notice, all of those things that I just talked about, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, hospitable, respectable, that's not something that's just for pastors. That those are qualities that all of us ought to aspire to as Christians. Right? Being above reproach is just another word for being Christ-like, for being godly. We should all strive to be that way. But there are two skills that a pastor ought to have. He ought to be able to teach, as it says in verse 2, and in verse 4 he ought to manage his own household well, meaning he ought to be able to lead. He ought to be able to lead. So if a, if a, a pastor, if someone who wants to be a pastor cannot teach and cannot lead then he's not qualified to be a pastor. Now obviously those are skills that we can grow in. Now there's one phrase in the office of of pastor or overseer that we see here in chapter 3 that may strike some of us a little bit differently. It says in verse 2 that he is the husband of one wife. Now there are a lot of ways that this phrase has been interpreted and understood throughout history, but let me try to give you a synopsis. The office of pastor historically, biblically, is reserved for men. Listen to Our Confessing Document, The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it says, The scriptural officers of the church are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now that phrase in 1 Timothy 3.2, translated here as the husband of one wife, literally means he is a one-woman man. A one-woman man what does that mean? Well, sometimes people have interpreted that to mean that you can't have more than one wife. You can't be a polygamist, which is probably fair, right? I mean, it probably would be confusing at best if the pastor of your church had more than one wife and is preaching from Ephesians chapter 5 on how Jesus gave his life specifically to the church. That'd be kind of weird. Others have interpreted this text to mean that a pastor cannot have been divorced, that he is no longer a one-woman man, especially if he is remarried, right? And all of those things may be valid and fair, but Jesus himself was not married. We have it on pretty good authority that Paul was not married, at least during his missionary endeavors. And I don't think that the Bible would say that, that Jesus or Paul are unqualified to be pastors. So it doesn't mean that you have to be married. It doesn't mean that you have to, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily, it's not precluding polygamy, although polygamy is not good. And it's not precluding somebody who's been divorced. What a one woman man means is, are you faithful to your wife? Are you the kind of person who is faithful, that is committed, that is godly in your relationship with those whom you love, especially the one that you've committed your life to? So are you faithful? But in that, the husband of one wife, we see that the role of pastor has been reserved for men. Now we see this in God's design. I'm just going to give you a couple of verses. We won't read them all together, but three things that you can look at if you're thinking through, okay, how do I understand that the role of pastor is reserved for men and not women? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see that God's design is for men and women to be equal in their value, in their honor, in their dignity, in their image of God, in their worth, but they are given different functions and roles. So God talks to uh, Adam in Genesis 2.18 and says, it's not good that man should be alone, and so God will make a helper fit for him. So the role of men and women are different. They are complementary. They go together, but they are different. Next, and I've already mentioned this, in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 23 through 33, There's a clear distinction of roles between husbands and wives as they relate to Christ and the church. So there's a parallel here. The way that husbands and wives ought to exist in loving complementarity uh, where the husband and father leads the home and the wife and mother supports and helps in the family. In the same way, men who are in the church, uh, men are reserved for the office of leadership and pastor and authority in the church. There's a parallel there in Ephesians chapter 5. And then finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it is clearly said that women are not permitted to teach or have authority over men. And some people might think, well, this is just like a cultural thing. Like maybe the women were just like super rowdy in Ephesus and Paul had to say something. But Paul's argumentation is not a cultural one. It's from creation. He appeals to Adam and Eve to make his point, meaning that this is something greater than all of, uh, it's not just a cultural issue so the role of elder is reserved for men and we believe at lateview baptist church and many other churches that elders plural is is ideal so we believe in what's called a plurality of elders we practice that although brother al is the lead pastor right if somebody says like who's the pastor of lateview baptist church they're probably not going to start off by saying aaron right they're going to say al jackson right and that's totally fair and fine Although Al is the uh, lead pastor, there are 10 pastors who serve on staff here at Lakeview, and we share leadership and responsibilities as pastors. All throughout the New Testament, you read these letters that Paul is writing to churches, he's writing to the elders of the church, or he's writing to the overseers of the church. He's calling on the pastors to do these things. This is the normal practice of the New Testament, where churches have more than one pastor or elder. Does that mean that a church that only has one pastor is unbiblical? No, not at all. In the last 150 years in American culture, most, church, most Baptist churches have only had one pastor. That's fine. But hopefully you'll discuss this in a little bit. There's a lot of benefit to both the congregation and the pastors if there's a plurality. So what do, that's who pastors are. That's who elders are. What do they do? What, do? what does an elder do? I'm gonna give you just a couple of things. You may wanna write these down. But uh, what do elders do? First, they feed the sheep. They feed the sheep. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to preach the word. So Jesus is the word incarnate. And Paul is telling Timothy, preach the word. What your congregation needs more than anything, what you and I need more than anything, is the word of God. We need scripture. It's more valuable to us than gold or silver. In Acts chapter 6, we'll get to this text in a little bit. The apostles show us that one of their primary works is the ministry of the word. So above all, pastors are communicating to their people, Christ crucified. We're preaching the whole counsel of God's word. So we want to feed the sheep as good shepherds. What else do good shepherds do? They not only feed the sheep, they pray for the sheep. Good shepherds lift up the sheep. Throughout the Bible, leaders of God's people give example by praying. So Moses prayed to God to show mercy on Israel after their disobedience. Jesus prayed and as an example for his followers multiple times. Paul prayed constantly for the churches he helped lead. And the apostles proclaimed that their other primary role in Acts chapter 6 is the ministry of the word and prayer. The students know that your pastors pray for you. And not only do we feed you God's word, but we, we intercede on your behalf before God. Because I can have fellowship with you and enjoy your company and give you good counsel and uh, teach you the word. But ultimately, you need God to work in your life. You need God to do what I cannot do. So shepherds feed the sheep. They pray for the sheep. Third, they shepherd the sheep. They shepherd the sheep. They love them. They get into their lives. Good shepherds smell like sheep because they are among them. They tend to them. Believers have real problems that must be worked through. All of us have struggles that we deal with. And pastors have a charge to tend to these issues graciously, winsomely, and ultimately for God's glory. We see this in Acts and 1 Peter and other places. So this might look like counseling. Maybe you have a problem or an issue in your life and you go to a pastor to receive counsel. That's shepherding. It may be conducting a marriage or a funeral. Pastors are shepherding the sheep. Gary Spooner, a friend of this church, who used to be the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian, now one of the uh, lead counselors at the Owen Center, said this one time in a sermon at Lakeview, and I'll never forget. He said, preaching is public counseling and counseling is private preaching. And I think that's so right that pastors shepherd the sheep well. So they feed the sheep, they pray for the sheep, they shepherd the sheep. Next, good pastors, good shepherds lead their sheep. They lead their sheep. In Acts, Christians submitted to the leadership of the elders, and they devoted themselves to their teaching, to their strategies for ministry and for the vision that they had for the church. And pastors lead not just by casting vision and directing people to a certain place, but by modeling holiness. So it's why Paul can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or when he tells Timothy to pass along what he has been taught to men who will then teach that to other men. Right, That the pastor is the one who should be somebody who can be followed. He lives in the spotlight before his people and thus leads them into deeper communion with Christ through honest, vulnerable, and joyful living. And he should also find godly deacons who may lead through service as well as his leadership. So uh, pastors do all of these things. One more, feed the sheep, pray for the sheep, shepherd the sheep, lead the sheep. Finally, good shepherds, equip the sheep. In other words, good shepherds raise sheep. Believers must move progressively from one degree of holiness to the next and bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And the pastor is charged in Ephesians chapter four with equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So it's not the pastor's role. It's not my job. It's not brother Al's job to do ministry. This is really key. It's not our job as the pastor's to do the work of ministry. It is our job to equip you to do the work of ministry. So there's a great example of um, a story that I read of an apartment complex that was full of international students at this local college town, wasn't in an Auburn. And Uh, woman, this woman lived in that apartment complex, and she was noticing that all of these people from all around the world were coming to live in this apartment complex with her. And she went to her pastor and said, Pastor, what are you going to do about all of these international students that are coming to live in our town in my apartment complex? And he said, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? That God has placed you in that position, in that place, that you now live among the nations. And so he's, he's reminding this woman, uh, ma- ma'am, do you, do you remember the evangelism training that we did last year? Well, yeah, of course. I, I know how to share my, my testimony, and share my faith. Well, do you remember the, the apologetics uh, series that we did last summer where we learned how to defend our faith against other world religions? Oh yeah, I love that so much. So what, do you, what else do you need? And this woman was now empowered to say, I, I've been given the tools to go and be a witness to the people that God has put in my life. Pastors, equip The sheep, they raise the sheep. So if Jesus and the apostles are the foundation of the church and elders serve as the leaders and the shepherds of the church as we follow after them towards Christ-likeness, then that leads us to the last office, the office of deacon. So if you're taking notes, number three, deacons serve the church. Deacons serve the church. The word deacon literally means minister. These are ministers, people who serve the church. And we read about them in 1 Timothy 3 verses 8 through 13. Let me just remind you of some of the things we read. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning they should understand what they believe. They should be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. In other words, not any random person in the the church should come up and say, I want to serve as a deacon. No, what should probably be happening is the congregation and the pastors recognize, hey, this person is loving the church and investing their life in in the church, and they're serving in all of these different ways. that They recognize and affirm through that kind of testing. Well, then we get to verse 11. So look at verse 11 in 1 Timothy 3. It says, their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. What's going on, their wives? If, if pastors have their own qualifications and then deacons have other qualifications, but then their wives also have to be qualified, what's going on here? Well, in verse 11, uh, that word, that phrase, their wives, literally, it can be translated, their wives, or it can be translated, women. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded. So the question exists is this, can a woman serve as a deacon? Can a woman serve in the office of deacon? And my answer for you and me is maybe, maybe. Let's go with what we know clear, clearly to what we don't know as clearly. We know that 1 Timothy chapter 2 is clear, that I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. That's a clear text of Scripture. That's not something that we're like, oh, I just don't know what Paul really means when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. Okay. That's not ambiguous. That's a clear command. It's a clear prohibition. So the question remains is this. If your church, if our church, has within the body of deacons a role that includes leadership and authority, then women are not permitted to be a deacon. Why? Because then they would be having leadership or authority over men in the church as deacons. Does that make sense? However, if a church decides that the role of deacon is just one simply of service, that all they do is is minister to the other members of the church, they just serve, they meet needs, they do those kinds of things, well then yeah, women can serve as deacons because they're not leading or having authority over men. What we have at Lakeview is a body of deacons that has leadership and authority in the church. Therefore, women would not be permitted to serve as deacons at Lakeview. Now, there may be a day when that view changes, but that's been the view for the last, well, even before Brother Al got here. So 50 years, ever since it was started. And that's been a historic view in Baptist churches for the last 150 years in in America, that deacons have served a leadership function in the church and therefore have precluded women from serving. But in other churches where deacons are seen more as workers and lead servants, then of course women can serve. And they should want to serve, and we should want them to serve. So there's room for disagreement here. You may read that or hear me say that and go, oh, well, we should do that. We should have those kinds of deacons. We should have women deacons as well. And that's, that's a fine view. But let's be clear whether or not you view the role of deacon as something reserved for men or men and women, the fact is, by God's grace he has used the deacon body of lakeview as it exists to bless this church for a long time i mean we i don't think we will understand until it, decades from now that one of the legacies of lakeview and specifically of brother al is going to be how the deacon body existed under his leadership that god used those 12 men, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's exactly what deacons are to do. Deacons, if you think about a car, deacons are like shock absorbers. So as the car drives down the road and they hit potholes or speed bumps or other things in the road, the shock absorbers take the brunt of the violent nature of those bumps so that whoever is driving can remain smooth. In the same way, deacons exist in the church as shock absorbers, to take all of the issues and problems, that, that the needs that need to be met in the life of the church, and they minister to those needs so that the life of the church can continue smoothly. We see this in Acts chapter 6. We don't have a ton of time, uh, but flip over there with me very quickly. Acts chapter 6. Now as you turn to Acts chapter 6, I'll just set it up that um, what we see here is not technically pastors and deacons. What I think we see here in Acts chapter 6 is the apostles and a kind of prototype of what deacons will be in local churches. Having said that, I think the relationship between the apostles and these prototype deacons and the relationship between pastors and deacons in local churches is very, very similar. So there's a lot for us to learn as we read this text. So you should have in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we're going to read, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in other words, they were handing out food, Greek-speaking widows, and Hebrew-speaking widows were being treated differently. There was, a, there was prejudice going on in the church. Verse 2, and the 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, the whole congregation, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering. So let's just pause right there. So again, set the scene. Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. Hebrew-speaking widows were being exalted. The apostles came and said, look, this is not right that the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected, that the Hebrew-speaking widows are being exalted over them. We don't need to give up our role of preaching God's word and praying to figure this out. So choose from among you seven men who are full of the Spirit, who are wise, who are mature, and let them serve this body well. Now, notice what they do. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All seven of those men were Greek. They were from the people who were being overlooked. But they were full of the Spirit, they were wise, and they were able to bring harmony and unity to the church. So deacons exist to meet the needs of the church through their service and, as it pertains to View, their leadership. They free up the pastors to do pastoral ministry. Their goal is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace within a congregation. They help maintain and wrestle with various issues that creep up in the life of a church family. And every family has problems, right? So every family needs some shock absorbers. So as we kind of land the plane this morning, you may be thinking, as I've talked about pastors and deacons and Jesus and the apostles being the foundation, okay, why does this matter to me? Like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a deacon. And, and God forbid, maybe like some of the women in the room are thinking like, well, but why does this pertain to me? Because I'm, I'm not able to be a pastor. And if I'm at Lakeview, I can't be a deacon. And so like, maybe, maybe you're sitting here frustrated or, or wondering why this is important, why we need to know this. Hopefully, there's a couple of things I hope we get from this, and and you can discuss this further in your groups. First, I hope you see that our leaders are Christ-like examples that should inspire us to look like Jesus. So you should be looking for a role model, not necessarily on like Instagram, but within the context of your faith family that has proven themselves to be mature and faithful and godly, whether it's a pastor or a deacon or their wives. Next, we see that leaders are not perfect, but they remind us that our chief shepherd is perfect and that he gives good gifts to his church. Students, I pray that your hope is not in me because I will mess this thing up real quick, but Jesus will never fail us. And so hopefully by God's grace, you looking at pastors and deacons, you looking at the leaders of the church will remind you that the chief shepherd is always good, always faithful, always there. Next, I say all this to say, we need your prayers. Pastors and deacons, the leaders of this church, need the prayers of the congregation to lead and serve well. And last but not least, we should long to serve the church and ask God if he is calling us to minister. Now, women, if you don't have a title next to your name, the Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows your faithfulness to his kingdom and to his word and to his body. And men, perhaps some of you are wrestling with or thinking about what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And you may need to consider what if you gave your life to the body? He who desires the task of overseer desires a noble task, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. So let me pray for us and let's think through all of the ways that we can be grateful, all of the ways that we need to think more clearly how we can pray for those that God has put over us as leaders. Let's pray. God in heaven, thankful for these students. I'm thankful for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly about you, about the church, about biblical leadership. That, that this, this conversation would not be a, a source of frustration, but a source of joy. That it wouldn't be a source of uh, feeling like we lack, but feeling like we're motivated. Uh, That God, the the leaders that you've put in our church would inspire us to be more like you. So God, help us, help me to lead with wisdom and maturity. To manage my household well, to be above reproach, to be a one-woman man pray that for all of our pastors. I pray that our deacons would live holy, Christ-like lives, that they would be spiritually mature. They have been tested and found faithful. I pray for our congregation. I pray for these students, Lord, that they would see biblical leadership, the pastors and deacons of this church, as a great gift, something that we ought to steward with with grateful hearts. So, Lord, help us as we go into discussion time tonight or today. um, Help us to apply these truths to our own life as we think about how to live above reproach as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.